So like you said, my name is Jacob. I, I help out here with young adults at Tri-City, and I'm excited to bring us back to First Timothy. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, maybe uh, because you came during the Christmas series we were doing, or if you had a lot of turkey dinner, having a tough time remembering all the way back to last decade when we were in First Timothy, uh, let's, let's catch us back up, right? So we've got Paul, experienced church leader, writing this letter to this young pastor, Timothy. In this ancient church, uh, in ancient Greece, sorry, at the time it was not ancient, uh, Ephesus, uh, then he is teaching Timothy about shepherding the household of God, the church. So through the weeks, we talked about uh, the gospel as it relates to the household of God. We talked about qualification for church leaders. And today we're going to be in 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 10. So uh, you guys can flip open that in your Bibles. But Paul's going to be talking to Timothy about the importance of training and right training in the Christian faith. So I'm going to read us through uh, 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 10. It'll be on the screen. Take a look at how often he mentions training, because that's really going to ground our time together. Let's start there. Verse 6. Tim, if you put these things before the brothers, um, meaning the brothers and sisters of the church, the, if you put the truths of the gospel before them, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. There it is. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let me pray. Uh, God, we are walking into a new year with all sorts of goals in mind and, and hopes in mind, a new decade even, God. We, we just ask that you would help us to keep what gives life at the center of it all. That is you, um, that is your love for us. That is who you're inviting us to be you've made us to be in your son. So we just ask that now you help us to understand how do we train for what we should train for and live lives that are glorifying to you and joyful for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Let's talk about training. Um, so so we, know it's, we know it's up here. We see it riddled throughout our passage. And I think here at the start of 2020, it's probably timely for us because maybe you're not so jaded about New Year's resolutions in the past that you might want to set one now, right? You, you might be thinking about what, what's the goals this year I'm going to be striving for, this decade I'm going to be striving for. Even if you're not a big New Year's resolution person, we all typically get around this time of year to thinking about what should we be shaping our years around and after. Here we know that when we've got a goal, we train for it. We, we build a life in pursuit of that. And I think that this is going to have some really helpful applications for us as we're thinking about what we should be shaping our years around and probably worth grounding out in the first place. What is training really? What is training at the end of the day? Because that's going to guide a lot of our time. I mean, if you've seen a good movie training montage, you know that training has a lot to do with doing stuff, right? Lots of action. But there's more to it than just doing a skill or doing a technique. Um, and this becomes really clear when we think about Olympians. Um, Olympians do training uh, in, a, in a wholehearted way. As our resident Greek, Pastor Matt, will tell you, uh, 
Ancient Greece is where the Olympics were birthed. And, and so when Timothy is being spoken to in this context, there are a lot of people who are fans of the Olympics and, and Olympians both then and now can tell us a lot about training. Think about, for example, most decorated Olympian ever, Michael Phelps, right? He is someone who really understood training. One of my favorite training stories about Michael Phelps is that this guy, when he was a teenager, for five years straight, every single day, sick days, birthdays, holidays included, Michael Phelps trained every day for five years straight as a teenager. I, I know a lot of teenagers that don't even brush their teeth for five years straight every day, right? But, but that's that consistency. But this is the thing. He didn't just work on his stroke or get in the pool. His training was holistic. There was, there was an attention to sleep also. He was a world-class sleeper, which is my favorite part of Olympic training, by the way. Uh, no less than eight hours every night. His diet was meticulously cultivated. He huddled with his trainer often, right? And it, it implodes a lot of this false perception we have of what true training is, right? The perception of training is that it's just practicing a skill. But true training is a whole lifestyle dedicated to a goal. Yeah, there's the working on your craft side of things, but there's, there's a whole picture, a whole life, your values and all dedicated to that end. That's the kind of training that God calls us to. So now that we understand that, we can ask three questions that'll help shape our time. The first question is, what should we not train for? What should we not train for? Two, what should we train for? What's the goal that we should be pursuing? And thirdly, how do we train? What should we not train for? What should we train for? How do we train? Let's start with the first one. What should we not train for? Takeaway here, don't train for vanity. Don't train for vanity. Vanity is what is uh, superficial, worthless, pointless. Uh, We know uh, superficial people, um, we might see them in the morning when we wake up and look in the mirror, um, right? We, we, these, these are things, uh, superficial appearances, um, what's on the surface rather than what is underneath. Frankly, often a lot of care for oneself rather than loving other people and what's most important. Don't pursue vanity. Uh, Ecclesiastes calls it vapor. And there are two types of vanity, uh, two examples of vanity that we look at in our passage that Paul and God are cur- encouraging us in Timothy to avoid. The first is reverent, silly myths. That's our first example of vanity to avoid, irreverent silly myths. You see it in verse seven, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Very straightforward. And that word irreverent uh, has to do with what is uh, counter to God, what is contradicting God. So godless lies uh, that pretend to be divine wisdom. Uh, Think here superstitions, cult religions. In our context, that looks a lot like horoscopes, fortune tellers, right? Uh, I've got a lot of friends that, that, that are into that sort of thing. And, and I've got to be honest with you, they, they will say that I do things because I'm a Sagittarius, but if it's not bang on, they're, they're not like pain stricken about it. They don't actually really care if it's wholly true. They just kind of want to chase the feeling of a transcendent spiritual high regardless of whether or not it's actually correct, it's actually true, it's actually right. And Paul would say that that is, to quote, silly. And particularly in that context of occult spiritualities, we know throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, God says that that is is wrong and should not be pursued. That the spiritual that is true 
is God. Um, but, but that said, to chase such a spirituality, he would, we, we could call that vain. Um, there's, there's more here though for us. Of course, when God says that something is wrong, we shouldn't do it or pursue it. But there's also the sorts of vain things that are a little bit more complicated. I think the second example is really telling for us. He cautions us against bodily training beyond its value. Uh, we see it in verse eight. He says, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. See, Paul's comment here is it's a subtle nudge against those who value bodily training too much. Now, it's important to know, he's not saying bodily training is bad, right? It's, it's of some value. You should be a good steward of your body, exercise and, and eat in a way that's considerate of, of your health. The, the bodily temple that God gave you, like that, that's important, but it's of some value, right? There's, there's a space that the word of God calls us to live in between like couch potato and like Terry Crews. Okay, there's like a, there's like a re, somewhere in here, somewhere, there's, there's a space between like irresponsible poutine smoothies and eating obnoxious amounts of kale. There's somewhere in here. And that's where the word of God is calling us to live, right? Now, now I know physical health, uh, it's a sensitive topic. Um, you know, we, we, we have uh, people who have serious physical health conditions, ha- have serious mental health conditions around, around their, their bodies. That's, that's important and, and necessary to note. We, we'd encourage you to seek professional help about that. Seek loving support from your church family about that. We're here for you for it. But it's not really the, the, the special case we're talking about right now. Paul's saying there's, there's something in the general case where how much value we attach to our appearances and our bodily training, it can say a lot about where our heart is. And what we, what we see is, as most important, both in Olympic-loving Ephesus that wants to sport nice bodies and uh, here in Tri-Cities wanting to do the same things on our Instagrams, like there, there are plenty of people that treat bodily training as if it is of greatest value. And when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, we're pursuing it in vain. No matter how we train for vanity, it's a silly way to live. Um, we know this, frankly, because vanity's pretty unsatisfying, isn't it? I mean, think about your New Year's resolution. I don't know what it is. Uh, it could be reading the books that are stacked up on your shelf. It could be saving for that thing you really want to buy. I don't know what it is. I'm not even going to challenge the merits of it. Like, I'm not going to challenge the merits of your celery juice cleanse for like five seconds. Let's just think about what happens if you hit your goal. Like if you do it, if you, if you read the things, if you buy the things, it's possible to read a lot of books and still feel hollow. It's possible to, to buy that thing you long for and still feel empty. I, I think of it kind of like a mirage in the desert. You know, you're, you're walking, sun's beating down on you, you're hungry and you're thirsty and, and you see it off in the distance. Something that seems like an, an escape Something that seems like it'll nourish you and you run to it and it's actually a desperate illusion of paradise that fades when you get there. But I'll take you up on it. Let's say there's a fountain in the desert. How long do you think that water will satisfy you for? A month? A a few weeks? Tri-City, if we know that the joy from it that the paradise of it won't last, why is it the main focus of our 2020? You should set goals, I think. I think that's helpful, but we should, we should know when we're pursuing something as if it will 
save us in, from the feeling of, of constantly needing to run from this, right? A, a, a good example for me um, is uh, university debating. So uh, some of you might know I debate for SFU. Uh, I, I get to travel the country, and um, it's a real joy to get to debate against some of the brightest university students out there about pressing academic debates of our age. It's a lot of fun. But when you add that to like being away however many weekends a year to school full-time and three part-time jobs and a girlfriend and annoying Matt on a regular basis, like it's a lot, <laughs> right? And so to add that in, it's not a bad thing. It's just, I'm getting the sense, and I honestly prayed walking into it, but I'm getting the sense now that I think I need to step back from it because it's hindering my ability to be faithful and present with the God that I've been called to love and the people that he's called me to love. Uh, and, and if I'm going to be honest with you, I wanted to do it because I wanted to, there to be like some sort of you know, Christian people doing that thing well. I wanted to pursue some success for God. But if success for God comes at the expense of faithfulness to God, what are we doing it for? We're doing it in vain. So mine's debate. What's yours? Is it something at work? Is it, is it some goal you have for your family that you're constantly shooting for and you're seeing things fall through your fingertips as a result? I don't know what it is, but God is calling us to abandon the vain goals we may have, be they always wrong or wrong in this sense, in 2020. So what should we not train for? Vanity. What should we train for? Uh, Takeaway of this question, real simple, train for godliness. Okay, uh, godliness matters a lot in the letter of 1 Timothy. Uh, that word gets used 15 times in the New Testament, but that word gets used nine of those times in 1 Timothy. So clearly it matters a lot. And Paul says it explicitly in verse seven, rather train yourself for godliness. So in the training, right, the lifestyle, pursuing a goal, the goal is godliness. Cool, what's godliness? Uh, godliness, uh, it's best summarized, uh, a life of godliness is a God-centered life. It's a God-centered life. Uh, a life that reveres God rather than the irreverent silly myths that counter God and are opposed to God. Um, a a God-centered life of godliness is filled with respect for him, loving him for all his beauty and fearing him for all his power. It is recognizing that Jesus walked fully faithfully as a human being because everything he did was about his father's business. He lived a God-centered life and we are to live a life of godliness just like him. So that's what a life of godliness is. And Paul says that we should pursue it because of verse eight. This is why. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul says the reason we value godliness so much because it holds promise. The question that comes out of that is, okay, it guarantees something, it holds promise, but what does it promise? The answer is salvation. We see that in verse 10. It says here, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe or otherwise read specifically of all who believe. Now, this is important. If our hope is set on a savior, right? It's because our hope is in salvation. We need saving from something. 
And the truth is we've all lived lives of vanity. We've all pursued satisfaction on our own terms in ways that disobey and subordinate God to what we want. The Bible calls that sin. And because of our sin, God is totally justified to not be in relationship with us. We've cheated on him. He is justified to not be in relationship with us and leave us to, frankly, living the life of vanity, chasing things that only bring us death, death in this life and death forever in eternity. But instead of leaving us in the vanity that we deserve, God gave us salvation by sending us a savior. We read about it a bit in 1 Timothy 3.16. Dialing back to that now, it says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Okay, godliness. That's, that's what we're shooting for. That's the goal. What's the mystery of godliness? Well, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Try to that mystery of godliness is the person Jesus. Jesus was the only human being to ever live a perfect godly life. And because he was fully God, he was able to do it. So when all of us are struggling to get across the finish line at all, God was perfect, broke through the tape, won the gold medal and gives it to us who put our faith in him. So you don't have to worry about, am I, am I good enough to win this battle of godliness? No, God is good enough. And if you put your faith in God, then you are his and you have his righteousness. The promise of godliness, the promise of a God-centered life is this. If we are done training for what will kill us, we can trust our lives to Jesus, our savior. And if we profess faith in him, we have freedom now on earth and forever in heaven. Verse nine says it so clearly. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is the trustworthy promise that you can have freedom in God. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, what, was your 20, what were your 2010s like? What was 2019 like? How much running did you do? How tired are you? Do you want to know the freedom and rest of a God who loves you enough to die for you? If you want to know that freedom, Jesus is offering it to you and it is a trustworthy promise. We would love to talk to you after about how you can embrace it. And if you already consider yourself a Christian, by way of application, I think, I think the question on our mind is, okay, I know I should train for godliness. How do I train? Well, let's go to the last question then and, and consider it together. Um, how do we train for godliness? When trying to understand how to train for godliness or really train for anything, we, we, we come pretty quickly to understanding we need someone to help us get what we're shooting for. We need someone to help us understand how to approach our goal. We need a mentor. And who better to think about mentorship with than the greatest mentor in all of film, Mr. Miyagi, the Karate Kid. If you haven't seen, by the way, the original Karate Kid, not like Jackie Chan, Jaden Smith, great film, but if you haven't seen this Karate Kid, your application is go home and watch the Karate Kid, okay? Also other stuff, Jesus, but like watch the movie, okay? Um, if, you, if you've not seen it though, let's catch you up. 
Uh, scrawny kid from Jersey, Daniel, goes to this new place, and he's getting picked on by these martial arts savvy bullies, and his building's janitor helps train him to uh, compete in a martial arts competition against them. Broad strokes. Now, let's be Mr. Miyagi for a second, okay? We're going to train Daniel-san. What are you going to do to train him? Maybe some strength training, maybe some, maybe some cardio, maybe some, practicing some techniques, right? Wrong. Okay, Mr. Miyagi has a different plan. His plan is to get Daniel-san, iconically, to wax on, wax off his fleet of cars, right? Paint and oil his property. And Daniel is pissed. Like, Daniel's so confused. He's like, why am I doing this? I'm going to get beat up. He's like, wax on, wax off. It's like, Miyagi. He's, he's so frustrated. And by the way, let's take away the suspended disbelief for two seconds. Daniel is totally right. If you are trying to win a martial arts competition against trained martial artists with like basic car detailing and landscaping techniques, you're going to get waxed. But let's put that aside for two seconds, okay? The idea here of the film, the central premise that it's teaching us about discipleship and mentorship is that we don't always know how to get to our goal. And so the process might not make a lot of sense sometimes, but we need someone to help show us the way. And I think that's really helpful for when we're understanding discipleship in the Christian life, because that, that really is what training for godliness is. You want to catch all one word term for that? It's discipleship. This is the great adventure that Jesus invites us all on. When he says to his disciples at the end of the gospel of Matthew, he says, go, <laughs> make disciples of all nations teaching them to obey, um, right? It, to be a student of God, to be under his lead uh, as our rabbi. That, that, is, that is what we're talking about, discipleship here. And there are a few pillars of the Christian life of, of discipleship that we see teased out in this passage that I think would be really helpful for us to consider as we go into 2020. So um, the first is God, okay? The second is church. And the third is you. Okay, God, church, you. Let's take them one at a time. Firstly, we are discipled by God. And we know the bedrock foundation for us is, is God's word. We see it in, in verse six. It says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in what? The words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. The teaching of God in, in the Old Testament and in God's inspired teaching of us through the apostles' teaching, which we have preserved for us in the New Testament, right? God's word is the foundation for how we know God's will for us, right? That is the bedrock of our training. We know that, I think, hopefully. Um, now you know. Um, but something that we often, I think, neglect in our discipleship by God is not just, not just his, 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 his word, but that he personally is discipling you, right? The, the most important aspect of that verse 10, God is our, our savior. He didn't just live a perfect life and give you his righteousness, which he did, right? He didn't just reconcile to you to himself forever in heaven if you put your faith in Christ, which he did. But he's your savior right now, working in you and with you, living your life with you right now. It's not a one day thing or a distant thing. If you have put your faith in Jesus, the spirit of God is living in your heart and he's dwelling in you. And God chooses to live your new life with you. Um, 
a few verses that we can see to tease that out. Uh, Jesus talking to his disciples at the end of the gospel of, of John, kind of John, John 14, uh, getting near there, um, or end of his life rather in the gospel of John uh, before the crucifixion. 16 to 17 says this, and I will ask the father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. This is the Holy Spirit. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. He's not just talking about for the apostles. The Holy Spirit dwells in us as believers also. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Tri-City, all things is a lot. God's gonna teach you a lot, all things that you need to know to walk faithfully with him. And this is an act of our one triune God. The father will send the spirit in the name of the son. The father and the son send the spirit. Our one God is so personally passionate about discipling you and training you for his glory. And Philippians 2.13, my favorite, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Jacob, I know I'm supposed to live a life of godliness, but if, if I'm being honest with you, sometimes I, I don't really want to. And if this comes down to how much I want to be godly, uh, this ain't good news for me. Well, the good news for you is that God knows that you don't want to all the time. And he didn't leave your discipleship or your formation into Christ's likeness totally up to you. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you can have trust in the fact that, that it is God who's gonna get you across the finish line, not yourself. So our one triune savior, Father, Son, and especially in this way, the Holy Spirit, he's given you his God's perfection. And he's gonna walk with you and disciple you day by day um, so that you can be more and more like him. He's your main discipler, pillar and foundation for training in godliness. That's, that's God. Second pillar is the church. Now, remember the context of this letter, right? We know this has to do with church leadership. When we talk about discipling and all sort of stuff, we know this is gonna have to do with like the elders and, and the pastors of the, of the church. Um, of course, the caution here that I think is, is important for us to remember is that church leaders must be people who can have verse six said about them, right? That they are being trained in the words of the faith, not just that they were trained once upon a time. This is an ongoing for a reason. They are being discipled um, by God, by the church, um, and that they have followed the good doctrine, right? It's not just lip service or that they can recite things to you. Church leaders must be must follow in uh, godliness and godly ways, period. So I think, I, think, I think we know that kind of intuitively, or if not, now you know. Um, but the, the thing I think we often neglect here is the role of the whole church in discipleship, right? Not, not just pastors or elders or even CG leaders, nice and great people, but if you know the bigger context of Paul's encouragement of Timothy and Paul's celebration of Timothy's formation as a disciple, then you know that he's also talking about people who weren't quote-unquote conventional church leaders like, like I was mentioning. He's talking about other people too, particularly Timothy's mother and grandmother. Right? We see this and their central role in Timothy's discipleship in, in another letter Paul writes to Timothy. He says this in 2 Timothy 
1 verse 5, he says, Tim, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. He also says later on in the letter, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Oh, is, is that just like church elders? <laughs> no, it's, it's, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Parents and grandparents, important to flag here, primary human responsibility, like not God responsibility for discipling your kids is not Sarah Breedveld's job. She's a nice supplement, but primary responsibility in a not God sense for discipling your kids is, is yours. Taking it a step further, it's not just in that like family unit, it's also us. Beyond that, I, we could tell probably from these verses and also from the first verse of Acts 16 that Tim's dad probably wasn't that involved in informing him spiritually, uh, which is unfortunate. But, but Timothy also probably had some male spiritual father figures in his life in the church, um, right? I, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Uh, my first spiritual father figure was a guy named Josh Duell at Westside. Uh, there he is, uh, I think. Cool. Nice guy. Um, you know, he taught me my foundations class uh, and then uh, was my CG leader for a while. But really, he just did Christian life with me. Like he took me out for breakfast and invited me over for dinner. We went to the park and, and we played with his kids. Uh, he answered questions. He gave me books and stuff. He just did life with me. And it wasn't just Josh, right? There were other people in the church who saw me and, and loved me and were a friend to me. And I'm not gonna lie to you, at first the friendship was pretty like asymmetrical in terms of discipleship, I guess. Like I didn't know how to read my Bible at all. So they were walking with me through the little bits. But more and more day after day, that became more and more mutual. And there were ways that we were bringing each other up in the faith, like shoulder to shoulder. But the idea, the idea here is they did not wait on Norm Funk and Matt Menzel to teach me how to be a Christian. They knew it was gonna be a team effort. So y'all, what does, what does this look like uh, in the lives of those around you? If, if you've been here for a little bit, if you've been here a year, um, who are you inviting out for coffee? Who are you inviting over for dinner? I mean, I know that there are stumbling blocks to that, right? Some of us don't know how to spark a discipleship relationship. We don't want to like be the young person walking up to, you know, someone who's a little bit older. They, oh, they're busy. They got kids. I don't want to annoy them. You know, if I hear from some of my more seasoned in times, brothers and sisters, you know, you don't want to feel like you're prying into, you know, yeah, they seem like they, they got stuff. They got their friends. I don't want to, you know, be getting all up in their business and assuming things. No, I, th I think we could just like ask each other to go for coffee and hang out. Uh, and, and do the Christian life together. And that will, will be used by God to develop in each other, develop in us, the kind of godliness, the kind of discipleship, the kind of culture of a church that God wants us to have. So who can you take out for a coffee? Who can you invite over? Who, who can you ask to spend some time with you so we can be the church together? Lastly, Let's talk about you, uh, not y'all. Y'all are great, you, for a second. Because there's God and there's the church, but, 
but we as individuals have a really important part to play in our discipleship process. Um, we, we have here, I think uh, we can tell in the, first, uh, in the last verse at the beginning of it, Paul talking about intense training that involves us pretty personally. For to this end of godliness, we toil and strive. Tri-City Church, the Christian life is going to require sweat. And I don't know what that sweat looks like for you specifically, meaning what that discipleship plan, what that journey specifically looks like for you, it might be as a single mother who's working, different than a retired grandpa, which is different than a student. I can't give you a detailed version of what your sweat is going to look like. But thinking like an athlete for a second, right? They have a regimen. They eat, get in the pool, you know, hopefully not one after the other. Uh, they watch film. They have stuff that they do generally. And then their, their coach works with them to figure out what that looks like in their life. We also have disciplines as Christians that we, we practice, right? We, we read the word of God. We hear from our Lord by, by looking into his word. Right? We talk to God, we pray to him, um, we gather with the saints, we, we rest, we do acts of mercy. We've got disciplines, but, but the goal here is not to give you a laundry list of things to bang out, okay? The, the idea is that we would recognize, man, Paul's delighted to toil and sweat and he's calling Timothy to delight in it and I know I can too, and it should be something I do this year to figure out what that looks like. What does faithfulness to the toil and sweat of training for godliness, what does that look like for me? And if you don't have a disciple currently to help you figure that out, um, I would highly recommend connect with Tim in the lobby. Um, connect with any of us really ministry leaders here. We'd be happy to get you connected with someone who can start to work through some of that with you. But also, I know not all of you got saved yesterday. Some of you have been been uh, dancing this song a little while now. Remember, Timothy being trained, not just discipled once upon a time, not just coasting on Bible college from 30 years ago. Sorry, that was a bit direct. Um, but, but, but are you getting together with brothers and sisters so you can sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron? Because we're, we're not going to make it lollygagging, right? But, but I want to I want to point out the most important discipline for us in 2020 and in this decade. The most important discipline for us is wrapped up in the because of verse 10. Verse 10 says, for to this end we toil and strive because. Here's the most important thing. Because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior. Tri-City Church we are disciples who will train for godliness this year. And that training is founded on an understanding of why we train at all. It's not to earn the love of God. That's on law. You have that. If you've put your faith in Jesus, his gold medal given to you, you are not trying to earn the love of your heavenly father that is taken care of. But you should know that in striving for godliness this year, you know you're going to mess up in this. You know you're not going to be as godly as you should be. And that God is, I, I hope you know, not going to be surprised at where you fail. He knows exactly how many times you're going to yell at your kid. He knows exactly how many times you're going to lust after who you shouldn't. He knows uh, when you're going to drop off of your devos, date and time, okay? And then hop back on again. He knows where you're going to remain silent while his name is profaned and 
who you're not gonna share the gospel with, who really, really needs it. And he is going to love you anyway. He is going to hold fast to you. He's going to work in your heart. He's going to make you more into Christ anyway. And I think that that comes from us knowing that we have a living God. He is not like the dead idols who we strive for and run for that, that leave us exhausted after it all. He is a living God who fights for us, who puts us on his back and carries us over the finish line. And so because of that, let us toil and strive by the power of his spirit towards lives centered on the God who loves us no matter what. Amen? Let's abandon vanity. Let's train for godliness as disciples joyfully abiding in our gracious Savior. Let me pray. God, help us to rest in the knowledge that the good goal has already been achieved. God, there are, are vain things that we are chasing. Maybe some of them are totally contradictory to you. Maybe some of them are things you say are, are fine and well and good, but they're becoming ultimate in our hearts. And God, we need you to help us to abandon our vanity. And where we strive, God, to be good stewards of our lives, whether it's to be a, a good uh, mom or a good employee or a good student or whatever that is, wherever we have goals to be good stewards of your grace, let's examine our hearts, Lord, by your spirit. Would you reveal to us the, the heart we have behind our goals in the first place? Is it something that we need or is it something that we're grasping for so that we can feel enough or valued or successful for you? Would you help us to abandon vanity and to focus on centering our lives on you more and more this year and this decade? Would you help us to be a church that disciples, that is discipled by one another, that leans into those that are coming on behind us in the faith? And Lord, would we lean into our ultimate discipler? It's you. It's you who trains us. It's you who guides us. It's you who's gonna bring us home. So would we practice the discipline of remembering your grace in our lives? and magnify your name. Uh, we ask these things in the name of your precious Son, our Savior. Amen.